All scripture is God-breathed. And today, the scripture that we will investigate, Romans chapter eight, verses one through 17, is one of the great corrective chapters in my life. You see, I needed some serious, serious correction. And Romans eight was the chapter that delivered this correction to me. I'm not talking just about the correction that I had to go from formerly being an atheist who did not even believe in God to becoming a Christian man, I'm saying I needed correction after I became a Christian. I remember being in Bible college and I remember this one particular guy and oh, he and I didn't get along. He and I didn't get along. I was maybe a little judgy back then and and I just saw his long hair and his Birkenstocks and his cargo shorts playing Frisbee in front of the chapel and I thought, what is this, the 1960s hippie? Come on. And, And every time he would pray out loud, this is how he would start his prayer. Abba, Father, oh, we come to you, Abba. And I thought, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Show some reverence. So every time I would pray out loud, I would pray things like, Almighty and Eternal Master, we humbly bow before you. And say, I'll show him. I couldn't stand the way this guy prayed. I couldn't stand how familiar he seemed with God. I couldn't stand how close he thought he was to God because how dare he get so close to God? Who does he think he is? My misunderstanding was that I figured God was God Almighty, which is true, but I didn't really give credit for being God all loving. And because I had a misunderstanding of who God was, I had a misunderstanding of who I was and of how God perceived me. You see, I thought that when God looked at me, he saw an unworthy, sinful person and I better do something so that he can see something good. And so I devoted my life, I'm not kidding about this, I devoted my life to finding false teachers and teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training them in righteousness so that they could be thoroughly equipped for every good work just like I was doing God's good work. I built my entire adult career in ministry around finding people who were just like me when I was in high school. An atheist punk jerk kid and I thought, oh, some of them went to school and some of them got learned up and some of them got degrees and so I'm gonna go to school, I'm gonna go to Bible college and I'm gonna learn the word of God and I'm gonna be able to fix that and then God will love me. I even graduated Bible college and I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll go get a master's degree in Christian apologetics so I can be even more equipped to defeat the false teachers. Then God will accept me. Do you see how blind and misguided I was? Even though I was a Christian man, even though I was saved from the penalty of my sin, even though I had been justified, in no way whatsoever did I understand God properly. Romans chapter eight is the chapter that changed my life. Romans chapter eight is the chapter in which I understood for the first time 
Not only did God die for my sins, but God has brought me into his family. He is God Almighty. He is God All-Loving. And believe it or not, you can go to him and address your prayers, Abba, Father. Turn to Romans chapter eight and follow along as I read or follow along on the screens behind me. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to, living according, uh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. If the spirit you received the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. Did you hear it? It's clearly written in scripture. It's breathed by God in order to be breathed by us to a world dying all around us. God is God Almighty, but God is also God All-Loving. And we do not have to earn his affection. We do not have to work really hard, defeating false teachers or making lots of money to give it away to good, worthy missionaries. We do not need to bring a 100 people to Christ in order for God to love us. All we need to do is be in his family. God loves us so much, he adopts us. He brings us into his own family 
And because we are his, we do not have to worry about judgment. We do not have to worry about fear that comes with judgment. I don't worry about my sins because my sins have already been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. He has already died for my sins. The penalty for my own sinfulness has already been paid and when God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating and validating that sacrifice, I was justified as soon as I believed this truth. My sins are covered. And now I get to live a life collaborating with God, trying to become more and more like Christ. And because I am in Christ, the Holy Spirit is inside of me. And because the Holy Spirit is inside of me, and because I am in Christ, I am in God's family. That means I'm an heir of God. I am a co-heir with Jesus Christ. And because of this fact, not because of anything I've done, but merely because of whose family I'm in, I get to cry out, Abba, Father. Because there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Anytime you see three dots in a little triangular form like this, it stands for the word, therefore, Paul uses the word therefore to open Romans chapter eight to show you that this is not some fly-by-night operation. This is not some shoot-from-the-hip sermon that he's putting together. This is a logically airtight, constructed treatise so that we can better understand who God is and we can better understand how God sees us. This is a logical argument that Paul has been devising. You know this since we've been preaching through the book of Romans. You've seen the intricate construction of how he brings together all his thoughts leading to the next conclusion. The law was powerless to save, so God saved us by sending his own son. Therefore, there is now no condemnation since the Father does not condemn Jesus, neither can the Father condemn those who are in Jesus. Anyone who is in Jesus will not be condemned. They are not condemned. They will not be condemned. They cannot be condemned. If the Father does not condemn Jesus, he doesn't condemn those who are in Jesus. Now, the way this works is that we're not just talking about the cross. We're talking about the cross, death, and resurrection of Jesus as one event. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, remember, he cried out, Eli, Eli, lamba sabachthani, which in Aramaic is Aramaic and means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, Jesus was condemned, but only in sinful flesh. And having paid the penalty, experiencing death in the flesh, the father said, condemnation has been paid and he raised Jesus from the dead, and now there is no condemnation. We do not have to fear condemnation. We used to have to fear it. We used to have to fear it because the law 
was powerless to save. Just as we talked about last week. It was powerless to save because it was weakened by human flesh. Oh, the law has its purposes. The law is good. We know that the law is good. But the law doesn't come to save us. The law comes to reveal our own sinfulness. The law doesn't come to bring about our salvation. The law comes to instruct us about our need for salvation. Remember that the law is like an x-ray machine. It shows you what's wrong, but it doesn't fix what's wrong. You need a doctor to take care of you. You need a physician. You need a savior. You need the great physician. The law was weakened by sinful flesh. Every time the word Paul, or Paul uses the word flesh, rather, it's the Greek word sarks. Now sometimes this word is translated as flesh, and sometimes this word gets translated into our English versions as sinful nature, because that's what flesh indicates, a sinful nature. And so eager are some of our translators to make sure that we get it right, that the word literally meaning flesh sometimes gets translated sinful nature. Because the law was weakened by sinful nature. The law was weakened by flesh because in our own fallen state, we can't do it. It doesn't matter how hard you try, you can't be righteous with God. It doesn't matter if you go to Bible college, you can't be righteous with God on your own. On your own, you can't be righteous with God no matter how many false teachers you dispute. No matter what you do, you cannot be right with God on your own. He will not accept you because your flesh is weak and you can't live up to his standard. But his love transcends the standard, which is why God the Father sent God the Son to die for you and to die for me. Jesus came in the flesh not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. The law is not bad, but we were bad at keeping it. So God himself came to fulfill it. And when God himself becomes flesh to fulfill the law, through the cross, sin in the flesh is therefore condemned. When the God-man Jesus Christ, who had no sin and never broke the law, was condemned and took on everyone else's sin who continually breaks the law, sin in the flesh was condemned. And because sin in the flesh is condemned by Jesus, when we become a Christian and are therefore in Jesus, we become a part of that fulfillment. The law is fulfilled in my life. Not because I followed the law, I can't follow the law. Because Jesus follows the law and I'm in Jesus. Everything good about me is because of him. Nothing about me is good but because I am in him, all of his goodness is upon me. This is the truth we have to know because the battle rages on. The battle rages in your life and in my life and the battle is between flesh and the spirit and we get to choose whose side we will pledge our allegiance to. You might think, well, this is ridiculous. Why would anybody ever choose flesh if they're in Jesus? Because God is very, very keen to allow us to collaborate with him. We have no part in our own justification. None of us can justify ourselves and therefore be righteous with God. Only by the death of Jesus, the one who is God in the flesh, on the cross and being raised from the dead, can we be justified. 
I'm justified just by believing this. I'm in, I don't do anything. Everything I do is part of my sanctification. I have to collaborate with God. I have to work with him and he allows me to work with him or to grieve him. And sometimes we grieve him by living according to the flesh. If you choose to live according to the flesh, this is what happens. In our minds, our minds are on what the flesh craves, not on what the spirit craves. Oh, you know exactly what the flesh, the flesh craves. The flesh craves power. The flesh craves lust. The flesh craves greed and anger and all the other things. Everything you struggle with is exactly what the flesh craves. That's what the flesh wants. And if you live according to the flesh, your mind will be on what the flesh desires, but your mind will also be governed by the flesh and therefore death. Do not allow your mind to be governed by the flesh and therefore by death. Because you know that if you are focusing on flesh, which is sinful nature, sin will seize the opportunity and death will follow because the wages of sin is death. Instead, we must focus on something else. But this idea of focusing involves the mind. Why is it that everything here is according to, living according to the flesh, our minds get corrupted? Because when Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, he justified us. But, as you can tell, our bodies continue to rot away. Our bodies continue to get older and sicker and eventually we will die and our bodies will decay. And yet, we are a new creation. Because of the noetic effects of the, sin, of the fall, sin has wrecked our bodies and wrecked our minds. And Jesus came so that we could be freed from the penalty of sin but the effect of sin is still that we will die. Our souls are redeemed, but if we choose to allow the flesh to govern us, our minds tap back into the sinful nature that still surrounds us, and we choose not what God wants, but what we want. And that means in our minds we're hostile to God. We can become hostile toward God. We can grieve God. We can choose to be his enemy by choosing to indulge sin. Which will you indulge, sin or the spirit? If you indulge your sinful nature and therefore flesh, you cannot submit to God. You can't do it. And neither can you please God. There is no way to please God when you are in sin. There is no way to please God when you are hostile to him and when you're choosing a life of rebellion rather than submission. And if you are left to your own devices, you'll always keep running back. And how do I know? Because I'm one of you. I always keep running back. I always keep running back. Running back to my false ideology, thinking, oh, I gotta earn God's love. I gotta really work hard for him. And I have to be reminded that the Spirit has a better plan for me. The Spirit has a much better plan for me. The Spirit's plan is if he lives in you, our minds will be on what the Spirit desires. Be about what the Spirit desires. You can choose to sin or you can choose to be righteous. But the intermediate step between formerly choosing to sin and then choosing to be righteous is this middle step. And the middle step is choosing to do what God chooses, desiring to desire what God desires, wanting what God wants, 
When Jesus came to earth, he didn't pray, oh, everything I want, please give me. He prayed, not my will, but your will be done. If we follow his pattern and use the second order desire to want what God wants for us, then we can make first order desire and choices to do the godly thing. But if we can't even want to want what he wants, our first order choices will always be to sin. We have to desire what the Spirit desires. And if the Spirit is in you, the Spirit will make your mind on what He desires, not just what you desires. Also, your mind will be governed by the Spirit and therefore life. In addition, you will be peaceful towards God in your mind. Being hostile towards God in our mind is the problem in the first place. The passage that Derek read earlier and how Paul talked about in Romans chapter one both indicate very, very clearly that it is in our minds we choose the sinfulness around us. And when we choose sinfulness around us, the results are disastrous. We stop worshiping the creator, we start worshiping the created and God gives us over to a sinful mind and we indulge it all the more. But if the spirit lives in us, our minds can submit to God and our minds can please God. This idea of pleasing God is really, really important because the Holy Spirit is going to do a lot of important things. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. Paul says that very explicitly, meaning the Holy Spirit is what makes you a Christian. How do you know if you're a Christian person? You have the Holy Spirit. How do you know if somebody else is a Christian person? They have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, according to Paul in Ephesians 1.8, is the seal guaranteeing the inheritance. That's how we get the inheritance. The Holy Spirit is inside of us. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. If you do have the Holy Spirit, you are a Christian. And so some people ask, well, Andrew, how do I know I have the Holy Spirit? How do you know you have the Holy Spirit? Well, 2 Timothy 1.7 says the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Are you living a life of power, of love, and of self-discipline? If so, I think you've got the Holy Spirit in you. What does the Holy Spirit produce? The Holy Spirit produces fruit. Are you living a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? The Holy Spirit produces these things through power. Are you exercising the spiritual gift of love, the spiritual gift of faith, the spiritual gift of giving, the spiritual gift of hospitality, the spiritual gift of serving, the spiritual gift of preaching, of teaching? Not everybody gets all the same gifts, but do you use the gift the Spirit gives you? One of the ways we know we have the Holy Spirit is based on what the Holy Spirit will do in us. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit will do in us is make very, very certain that we have power. The power that the Holy Spirit has is the exact same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Do you understand what Romans 8, 11 is telling us? That if we have the Holy Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that raised our Lord from the dead, the single greatest miracle of all time, courses through our veins, we have the power of the Almighty One inside of us. Therefore, nothing should be able to stop us. And that means you will also be raised just as Christ was raised. You will get a brand new body. 
You will get a body that is incorruptible, imperishable, that does not grow old, that cannot die, and this will be the physical form in which you experience God for eternity. Because of the Holy Spirit, you can be free from sin's power. This is where we collaborate with the Holy Spirit to become more like Christ. You can daily collaborate with God if you daily choose to desire what he desires rather to indulge what you desire. Because you still have a fallen nature, you are going to want to sin. But if instead of choosing to indulge that sinful desire, you say, not my will, but your will be done. Not my desire, but your desires be done. Then you can daily collaborate with the Holy Spirit because he will convict you of sin. He will prompt you towards righteousness. And because the Holy Spirit is in you, you can be assured of this. You are a child of God. You're a child of God. No longer a sin, a slave to sin and to fear. You can be free from fear. How can you be free from fear? Well, it's easy, really. The Holy Spirit brings about your adoption as sons and daughters. If you want to avoid the fear of judgment, then be inside of Christ because outside of Christ, you're outside of the family and you are going to be judged. If you are adopted, you are now inside of the family and it is taken care of. When the Father views you, he views Christ's perfect righteousness. And because you have been adopted, you have total access to God. You don't need to go through a human intermediary. We already have a divine intermediary. When God became flesh, that bridged the gap between God and fallen humans, and we can go straight to God, total access. We don't need to go to a human person to, uh, for forgiveness. We don't need to go through anybody to get to God. But if you lived according to the law, you would. If you lived according to the law, do you know who had total access to God? Nobody. In fact, only one guy had access to God. Only one guy, the high priest of the nation, was allowed to go into the most holy of holies, the room inside of the temple in which housed the Ark of the Covenant, and then only once a year. And then because everybody was so afraid of God, they tied a rope around this guy's leg just in case God struck him dead. They wouldn't have to go into the room lest God strike them dead in their efforts to pull him out. They could just drag the body out by the rope. That's how afraid of God they were. No more! No more. Because of him, you don't need to be afraid of God. When that guy with the long hair and the Birkenstocks always prayed in Bible college, Abba, Father, oh, I hated it because I didn't know who I was. And I kept thinking, who do you think you are? And you know what the answer is? He thinks he's a co-heir with Christ and he's an adopted son of God. And he's exactly right. You can be an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ and be an adopted son or daughter of his. You can cry out to him, Abba, Father. What does Abba, Father even mean? Abba is an Aramaic phrase that's almost pre-linguistic in its nature. Sometimes people understand it as daddy. I understand Abba as dai. Dai, what is that? that that's, that's, that's a phrase that you maybe have never heard because that is how my seven-year-old son with Down syndrome, Clark, says daddy. He says dai. And so at night when I tuck him in and after we pray and I lay down and I think he's asleep and then I quietly extricate myself from the room but I shut the door just a little too loud. Dai, dai. 
He's crying out for the one that will protect him and keep him safe when he's scared. That's what Abba means. When, when I walk into the house and he sees me and he runs up to me and he gives me a huge hug and he says, die, that's what Abba means. When, when he points to his sisters and to his mom and says, look, look, die, and he's now pointing to me, that's, that's, what, that's what Abba means. To me, Abba means die. And you are allowed to pray Abba Father. In fact, I encourage it. The Spirit will testify not only that you are a child of God, but if you want to know that you have the Holy Spirit, ask, do I believe these things from the inside out? Does the Holy Spirit testify to the truth that God loves us, that God became flesh to save us, that Jesus died and was resurrected, that sin, death, and Satan have lost, that the Bible is true, and most importantly, that we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ? If the Holy Spirit is inside of you and you ask him to reveal this truth to you, he will testify to the truth of these things. And then you will know by him internally attesting to the truth that you have the Holy Spirit. And you'll know you're saved. Never will you question, am I a saved person? For it's God's grace that saves us. His amazing grace is what saves us. And because of his grace, we have justification which means that we have been saved from the penalty of our sins because Jesus died on the cross taking our penalty. It's God's grace that saves us. And because of his grace, we have sanctification. We are being saved from the power of sin because the Holy Spirit is in us, propelling us toward Christlikeness. This is where we collaborate with him. And it's God's amazing grace that saves us and we will receive glorification. We will be saved from the presence of sin when we receive our resurrection bodies, which are free from our fallen nature, from our sinful flesh. And this means we get to choose. God allows us to be certain things. Do you know that it's by God's will that we can choose to be hostile, disobedient enemies of God? Even when we didn't realize we were being this, anyone outside of Christ is a hostile, disobedient enemy of God, whether they recognize it or not. But we don't have to stay there. God's grace uh, is what saves us, and therefore, some people who've accepted God's grace can choose to be fearful, obedient servants of God. This is where I was. I knew God was almighty, I just didn't know he was all loving and I didn't know he could see me as Christ unless I worked really hard for him, and so I only saw myself as a fearfully obedient servant. But you don't have to stay there. Do you realize that in Christ you can choose to be a duty-bound, obedient friend of God? You could all choose to be duty-bound, obedient friends of God. No longer servants, but friends. Friends don't know the master's business, so anytime Jesus reveals his business to you, you are his friend. You could choose to be God's friend. But you know what God really wants for us? He wants us to choose to be lovingly obedient co-heirs with Christ. This is what we can be. I can honestly say I recognize that I can't be right with him, but in him he sees me as right, and I can embrace my status as a co-heir with Christ. I'm no longer like that rich young ruler of Luke 18, 18, who said, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life, I know who is the seal guaranteeing my inheritance, it's the Holy Spirit. I don't have to do anything 
to receive eternal life. I just have to be in the right family. And if you're in the family of God, don't you understand that you're an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ? So stop living a duty-bound life. Stop living a fearful life and encourage everyone you know to stop living a hostile, disobedient life. We can do better. What I want you to do this week is not only read back through Romans chapter eight, one through 17, and think through how God has adopted you as a son or a daughter of his, but I want you to share it with someone else. And if you're unsure about how to share it with someone else, at least do this much for me. Would you at least say, hey, come to church next week, we're taking a break from Romans, we're starting our Christmas run, and the guys are gonna be preaching through the doctrine of the incarnation, and we're gonna teach you all about the incarnation and how to share God's amazing love with the world. He loved us, so he became one of us. Do we love him enough to share this truth with other people around us? I think so, I think so. Will you stand with me as we pray this morning? Abba, Father, Dai, we love you. We know that you are the almighty and all-loving triune God of the universe. Thank you for adopting us as your sons and daughters. May we be those who are confident of our co-heir status with Christ and who reach out to a dying world around us. For God, we love you, but please don't just take our word for it. See it in our obedience. This we pray in your name. Amen. If anybody has a choice to make or a decision to make or needs prayer, come on down. Chris or I would love to talk with you this morning.